Podcasting from Oregon in the beautiful Pacific Northwest, welcome to Eye on Global Politics. Sit back, relax, and get ready to explore some of today's most pressing international issues. Now, here is your host, international relations scholar, author, and founder of the International Law Education Group, Dr. Paul F.J. Aranyas. And good evening. It's 7 p.m. and you're tuned into the ILEG radio show, coming at you live from the heart of Oregon's Willamette Valley on the West Coast, broadcasting around the world on radio.ileducationgroup.org and ionglobalpolitics.com. I'm Paul F.J. Ranyas, and I'm, in, I'm your host for the ILEG radio show for the next hour. And I had a script. Actually, not a script, but uh, some things I wanted to say, you know. There it goes. Throwing it out. So, uh, the next hour, we're going to be just having a discussion. This is not a class, not a, a lecture. A discussion on what's happening in the world, especially in Ukraine. Because it's uh, there's no end in sight right now. So, let's get started. When will this war end? Why hasn't there been any debate at all on Ukraine in Congress? We spent 91 plus billion dollars in Ukraine and there hasn't been any debate in con- on the floor of the Congress. Hardly just a few members of Congress on either side of the aisle, but no debate whatsoever, no debate in the media. It's all been one-sided as if it's taken for granted. What do you think? Do you think it's worthy of a debate? To spend $91 billion, the Russian military budget, the annual military budget for the Russian Federation is approximately $70 billion. And we've spent $90 billion on finance and weaponry to Ukraine without a debate here at home. Now, you go down the street in the nearest city from me and you'll find people all along the sidewalks in tents. You see it in Portland, you see it in San Francisco, in Los Angeles, in any city, in Phoenix, in Dallas. You'll see it in any city. And the question is, why is there no debate when we are spending 90 plus billion dollars in Ukraine when we have needs here in the United States? Healthcare, homelessness, education. I just saw in the New York Times that Teachers are quitting left and right. They're just overwhelmed because there's not enough staffing. They're doing duties like mopping the floors. 
mopping the floors. In addition to teaching their curriculum and administrative duties, they're also mopping the floors, cleaning the bathrooms, things like that. They're burnt out because of the pandemic, because of the behavioral issues in the classroom, the fear that pervades the education system with the mass shooting epidemic in this country. And yet, our politicians find the time to constantly wag their finger at other countries and create problems around the world. Now, we have to talk about the war in Ukraine. Because the media narrative is there's a good guy and a bad guy. That Ukraine was sitting there peaceful. Just a country of people going to work and sitting in cafes. And suddenly... Russia had the idea that it wanted to take it over. An imperial adventure. That's the narrative in in the media here, in the West. It's not only in the United States, it's in Europe as well. It's the Western media, the BBC, the French news, the Canadian news. That's the narrative. A good guy and a bad guy. Is that the reality? Is that the reality? Is it that? clear-cut, black and white? Or is there something that they're keeping from you? The question you have to ask is, why that? Why is there no context being given? Why is there no context about this war, how we got here? In, an, in any other situation, you'll be seeing uh, docudramas on CNN, on MSNBC, on the BBC, on the background of situations when they're enemies of the United States. And yet, the media wants us to believe, wants you to believe, that everything started on February 24th, 2022, when Russia suddenly got an inkling come across the border. Now, I have to say that I I abhor war. I, I don't like it. I, I I don't know many people who do like war because war is hell. And nobody wants to see the suffering uh, and the, the carnage that comes along with the war. I was listening to a Franciscan priest the other day, Catholic priest, and he, he mentioned perhaps we're, we are the early Christians, that in 2,000 years, they'll look back and say, can you imagine how there were Christians in the 21st century that thought it was okay to kill people? That it was okay that they had something called a just war theory or that they made excuses that was this or that, that they actually killed people. Can you imagine that as a Christian? That's what They'll say, according to uh, this Franciscan priest. Now, that sounds nice. It does sound nice. And that's what I'd like to see, a, a world where we don't have war, because I think war is, is horrible. But considering that we have war in this world, and we have wars raging right now in multiple places, and in numerous places on this planet at this very moment, we have to also deal with the reality And we have to understand how to try to limit these wars and to prevent them. 
in the within the flawed societies that we live in. And so in order to do that, we have to analyze the, how did they start? How can we prevent them? Was there any way to prevent them? We have to ask questions. The media is doing a very poor job of asking questions because it's not actually performing its duty. It's, it's not performing its function. It's actually, war, it's actually acting in the manner of a war propagandist. They'll point to the Russian media and say that's propaganda. But even if Russia has propaganda, that doesn't exclude our media from propagating its own propaganda. It's not either or. You can have propaganda on both sides. And the duty and goal of an informed person is to try to sort through that and find the truth the best that you can. And the best way to do that, one way to do that, is by asking questions. What's in it for the United States to send 90 billion plus dollars to Ukraine? What's so special about Ukraine? Now the media wants us to believe that it's because there's a victim and a victimizer. What about the Palestinians? The Yemenis? And did this country just finish a 20-year occupation of another country? And before that, an, an, illegal, an illegal invasion of a sovereign nation called Iraq? And then the bombardment of the Federal Republic of Yugoslavia? It can't be because they think war is wrong. Can it be that this situation in Ukraine has some ulterior motive for the United States, for Europe? What other questions can we ask? Who gets hurt? Who benefits? Why can't we find any context on the situation, the history of this situation in our mainstream media? Do they think that Americans and Europeans are so fickle, so lacking of critical thinking that they don't deserve context? Why does the media say things without proof? The AP ran the story the other day, initially, that a Russian missile hit Poland without any evidence at all. At all. And it was based on one U.S. official source who turned out to be wrong. How dangerous is that? The Associated Press, because as we know, in our media environment, there are agenda setters with the Associated Press, United Press, the AFP, Reuters, they set out the news. They turn out the news, and you have major papers do that. Also. The New York Times, the Washington Post, and then the smaller outlets, they pick up on that. They don't have the resources to do what the AP or the New York Times does. These major few outlets set the agenda in the mainstream media. 
and the AP sends out a report that was a Russian missile that hits Poland without any evidence except one U.S. official citing as a source. Now that reporter who did that, he was, he was released, he was fired. And rightfully so. But the problem remains is, why did they release that? And then apologize later. Because they are, they have a bias. A confirmation bias. They want to, they're looking for information that suits their narrative. Why do they keep on saying that Russia is running out of missiles? They've been saying that since June. And every week I turn on the television and I see that Russia has sent 70 more cruise missiles into Ukraine, hitting the infrastructure. But they're supposed to, they were supposed to have run out of missiles in June of this year. What, what kind of media operation are we running here? It's, this war has really taken the mask off the West. And talking about liberal values, human rights. What kind of liberal values shut down media corporations when you don't agree with them? When this war started, they shut down Russia Today. They shut down Russian state media on YouTube and other platforms. That is really telling. Because if you have a population that is baseline educated, they should be able to handle multiple viewpoints. You should be able to get the Russian news source, knowing that it's a Russian news source, and say, okay, this is the Russian opinion. At least the governmental opinion. The problem is that in the United States, people have been led to believe that the media is telling the truth here. And perhaps when it comes to weather and sports, but when it comes to international foreign policy, the media has a perspective. It's promoting the perspective of the U.S. government. How many retired generals and Defense Department officials are seen on mainstream media constantly. They're a staple. They're regular, regular contributors. CNN, MSNBC, Fox News, they have a perspective. It's the American perspective. Just because they are not directly linked to the government doesn't mean they are not promoting the government's line. In fact, when you have a system the way we have our system, where corporate donations are so integral. What was last election, the midterm elections, was a $15, $16 billion election cycle spent on on, on electioneering. When you have that much corporate money in the system, it's hard to see the lines between the corporate power and the government. Corporate power becomes the government. The government's doing the bidding of corporate power. And so, 
when we look at the media, what they're putting out, it's a form of state media. But they want to pretend that it's objective. And, and this, this war has really taken down the mask. It's taken down the mask of uh, human rights, liberal values, because liberal human rights, freedom-loving people don't ban stations because they don't agree with what they're saying. In fact, they want those stations because they want to find out what they're thinking. They want to find out even what their adversaries, they want their pop- the population to understand the situation better, to make informed decisions, to understand why you're spending $90 billion. Because if it's truly a just cause, you'd want to explain everything. You'd want to show them the other side. You want to show them the context. You want to give them all the information that they need as an informed, critical, freedom-loving country Because after all, you're in the right. But that's, that's not what they do. They hide. They conceal. When this war started, they went after, after oligarchs and rich Russians uh, taking their yachts, mansions, Where did due process come in? There's no due process anymore? Just because somebody was supposedly linked to the president of Russia, the Kremlin, they're going to have their private property seized, confiscated? And where was the oversight for that? Where's the judicial due process? No, no, no. I think we've been hoodwinked, bamboozled, Run astray, let us let astray, run amok, as Brother Malcolm said. No, that's not what freedom-loving countries do. They don't conceal. They don't hide. They don't use trickery. And they don't use gross hypocrisy. Now, how can we not look at this, this war as the hypocrisy war from the Western, Western angle? The United States spent 20 years occupying Afghanistan. 20 years occupying Afghanistan. Invaded Iraq, killed a million Iraqis. Consistently and constantly fund Israel to occupy the Palestinians. Give billions in weapons to Saudi Arabia to massacre the people of Yemen. And then the United States turns around and points a finger and says, oh my goodness, Russia's having a war against Ukraine. Now, like I said, war is bad. Nobody wants to see it. Nobody wants to see Russian soldiers dying or Ukrainians being killed. We need peace. But in order to have peace, we can't be playing the same old playbook. And so we have to ask the question, was this preventable? And here comes the Ukrainian uh, cheerleaders, the the pro-war Ukrainians, saying, well, it was preventable, but 
Vladimir Putin didn't have to go in on February 24th and come across the border with his army. Yeah, that would have prevented the escalation. But the question is, what was the state of affairs before February 24th? Was it a peaceful country? Was there or was not there a war happening in Ukraine before February of this year? And how many people had, had died in that war? 14,000 people. Thousands and thousands of civilians. Poroshenko, the former president of Ukraine, who was just on being interviewed on one of the major networks here in the United States. A few years back, he was up there talking about how the children of Dumbass, giving a speech in the Ukrainian parliament, how the children of Dumbass were going to hide in basements while their children went to schools. How they will have pensions and the people of Dumbass won't have pensions. So we're working our way backwards. We can see now that there was something going on in Ukraine before February of 2022. There was a war happening. 14,000 people dying since 2014 in a war with trenches and artillery, artillery and shelling. That's not a skirmish, that's a war. That's a war. And how did that war come about? You had a democratic, a democratically elected president in 2014, imperfect, perhaps, most likely, but still democratically elected. And John McCain and Klobuchar and Victoria Newlin and Lindsey Graham were over there in Ukraine with the United States and the European Union. The European Union was trying to get Ukraine to sign on to a, an association agreement. And they were all in there trying to stir things up and support a violent coup. Police officers being lit on fire. People being shot. And from all indications, the response from the government in Kiev in 2014, in Ashenko, was very hands-off at first. And it got more extreme and more extreme. And it was violent. It was a violent coup. And the president fled with the support of the West for the people of the coup. And, and, and there's such outrage at January 6th, as there should be. It was, it was inappropriate. It was criminal January 6th. But that violence paled in comparison to what happened on the Maidan in 2014. And yet the United States and the Europeans Back that. Hypocrisy much? They backed that. They backed a coup. 
So this is all very, uh, I wouldn't say confusing, but it's disheartening. Because there's so much hypocrisy. There's so much a lack of consistency from the West. Human rights, they go out waving their finger about human rights and then they got people locked up in Guantanamo Bay without charge or trial for 18 years. Invading Iraq, Afghanistan, drone bombing people and then they go on the media and they act shocked. Like they're the Dalai Lama when they see a, a war between Russia and Ukraine that they instigated. So where, where do we go from here? Where will this war end? See what John Mearsheimer has to say about that. Professor, University of Chicago. If the Russian military begins to fall apart, uh, I think you're then going to be in a very dangerous situation. If the Russian military does well against the Ukrainians, the Americans will go to great lengths, as will the Europeans, West Europeans and East Europeans, to help the Ukrainians rescue the situation. You want to remember that we're in a situation here where the Russians feel that they can't lose. And the Americans and their European allies feel that they can't lose. It would be a humiliating defeat for the United States, and especially for President Biden, if we were to lose this war and Russia to, was to win a great victory. So we will go to great lengths to keep Ukraine fighting. You know, as I've often said, we're gonna fight to the last Ukrainian. And the Russians are gonna fight like crazy to make sure that they don't lose. So the question you have to ask yourself is where does this all end? And in fact, there are a number of reasonable people in the United States and in Western Europe who are arguing that this war is likely to go on for years. Uh, it may go on at a lower level than it's now going on, but this, you know, th this war could go on for many years. Uh, and if you ask me, this is a prescription for disaster uh, because the potential for an accident or some sort of incident that brings the West into the fight uh, or creates a situation where nuclear weapons are used is always there. And uh, a war that's long uh, facilitates big trouble. Well, number of points. First of all, you compared this conflict in Ukraine with what happened in Georgia in August 2008. Uh, and you pointed out quite correctly that was a quick war. And of course, when the Russians took Crimea uh, in March of 2014, uh, that happened very quickly. There was hardly any fighting. Uh, it, this is a fundamentally different situation. That's John Mearsheimer at University of Chicago. And yep, he's got a good point. The longer this goes on, uh, the more complicated it becomes. More death and destruction. Devastating to the people of Ukraine and the United States and Europe seem to want to fight to the last Ukrainian. And you have a puppet government, a regime in Kiev that is doing Washington's work, its 
probably getting kickbacks. Billions of dollars flowing in with little oversight. We don't know where that money's going. We know probably about 30%, at least 30% of those weapons can estimate, it's been said. Can't give you any proof on that. But there's no oversight. Ukraine is the most corrupt country in Europe. But approximately, it's been said in numerous places that 30% of those weapons are ending up on the black market. Or being... Or being destroyed. Who benefits? Who gets hurt? The weapons manufacturers are benefiting. They're raking in the cash. You know, all, all over social media, you have these cheerleading cheerleaders for, for Ukraine. These keyboard warriors who are egging on a total victory for Ukraine. And I, I posted on Ion Global Politics the other day uh, what I said was many in the Western media bubble can't come to grips with reality. Russia has taken over 20% of Ukrainian land and it considers that part of its homeland now. Winter is approaching and Ukraine has little, or, little electricity or heat. Russia could... Can, Completely black out Ukraine, but is leaving some power to give Ukrainian, the Ukrainian army uh, an option, to give Ukraine an option to negotiate. The, U- the original Ukrainian army has been decimated and is now filled with conscripts and mercenaries. The longer this war lasts, the more likely Ukraine will cease to exist as a state. Maybe a small state in what is now Western Ukraine. Now I said you. Zelensky will either end up fleeing the country or go on trial. The West has poured billions of dollars into a lost cause and is starting to realize it. Consequently, you now hear rumblings of Western leaders encouraging Kiev to open negotiations with the Kremlin. Europe's economy is going to be devastated, having been a vassal of Washington. Next year, the pro-Ukrainian cheerleading post will look like fantasy. Now, I said that a couple days ago. D4M4G3 says, Has Russia been taking more land than it is losing in the last three to four months? Well, D4M4G3, you have to look how that land was taken. Taking land doesn't win wars. Defeating the other army wins the war. So when Russia withdrew, for instance, Kharkiv, when Russia Russia withdrew, they punished the Ukrainian army as they were leaving, inflicting mass casualties and preserving their own Soldiers to the best of their ability. But they inflict mass punishment. Right now in Kherson, everyone's hailing a, a, a victory of taking Kherson city and that surrounding region on the west side of the river. 
yet that's the size of maybe Delaware. And right now, they're being pounded from the other side of the river. And Russia is inflicting a heavy damage. The original Ukrainian army is not even there. You get intercepts from, uh, from the, the Ukrainian side, and it's Polish voices, French voices, English-speaking voices. There are a lot of mercenaries now fighting for Ukraine. But to answer your question, losing territory doesn't necessarily mean a darn thing if you're being punished as you advance forward and the other is not. Napoleon sat in the Kremlin, sat in Moscow. What happened to Napoleon as Russia withdrew, retreated, and let the winner take care of him? So there's more than one way to think about that. But time will tell, D4, M4, G3. Time will tell. And I submit to you that anybody who thinks that the Russian Federation is not going to steamroll in the long run over Ukraine is kidding themselves. And in order to avoid a situation like that, to avoid more bloodshed, more heartache, more unnecessary death, you need diplomacy, you need negotiations, you need to stop thinking that the solution is going to come by pouring weaponry in, billions and billions of weaponry, so that your weapons manufacturers can get rich. There is no way that that ends in a good situation for Ukraine. I mean, they've been watching too many Hollywood movies. Okay, if you really care about the ordinary Ukrainian people. And like I said, Ukraine was killing its own people. Was killing its own people for eight years. Where was the United States, France, Germany pushing for a peace settlement, pushing that the Ukrainians implement the Minsk agreements? Where was the concern for those residents in the Donbass who were being massacred? There was no concern because it wasn't even on the Western press. It wasn't even in the media. Politicians didn't talk about it. Why? Because these people were allied to Russia. They were allied to Russia. And the United States was propping up a puppet regime in Kiev. And there are neo-Nazi factions in the military itself, in the political structure. You know, people will say, oh, you know, Zelensky's Jewish. You know, that's, that's really good cover for having rampant Nazism. And it's not saying that he is necessarily a Nazi, although he may have uh, fascist leanings. There's, there are such things as 
Jewish people that have fascist leanings. It's not unheard of. But the real thing is he has no control over the elements around him, the nationalists, the Banderites around him. And if he went against them, he'd be finished. So, you know, we love to come up with these simplistic simplistic um, ideas in the media, these one-liners. Russia bad, Zelensky Jewish, no Nazism. But the, uh, the, unfortunate, uh, the unfortunate fact is that the Western press was documenting the rampant Nazism in Ukraine for some years before this war. We're talking about USA Today, The Nation, Radio Free Europe, Israeli press, a number of, a number of credible, the Atlantic Council, NATO's own mouthpiece. Numerous, I should say. You can go to ionglobalpolitics.com and look for Ukraine resources, resources for intellectual self-defense, and you'll, you'll find a listing of Western sources that documented this problem. And yet in 2022, when this conflict escalated, all that disappeared and it was unmentionable. But, and it is true, but consider that if it is true that we are funding right-wing extremists, where those weapons are going, Is that unheard of? No, we funded Al-Qaeda or their predecessors, the Mujahideen in Afghanistan, so we could fight the Soviets. So there is no really, there is no standard of behavior. We can't do that. No, 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 we can't do that. We provide weapons to MBS in Saudi Arabia, and he killed a, Washington Post journalist in the embassy, in the consulate in Turkey. And our own CIA says that he directly gave the order. And yet now our government says that he should have immunity. He will have immunity. What's going on here? What's happening here? There's a, a post that was posted on LinkedIn, came across my feed by Jans. I'm not going to give his last name because I don't want to publicize his rubbish. War and Business. And he talks about the spending, the 3 to 4% that NATO has and the U.S. has spent on arming Ukraine. And he says, imagine that you have a company and by investing 3 to 4% of your annual budget, you could remove your biggest competitor. 
There are not a CEO in this world that would not do that. So let's give Ukraine more aid. Let's go 7 to 10% and see where that takes us. Remember any Russian missile, aircraft, tank, and soldier killed, destroyed, used in Ukraine will no longer be a threat for NATO. Arm Ukraine now, he says, and give them the tools to finish the job. I responded about saying what, I, what I've already told you about many in the Western media bubble can't come to grips with reality and how this war is going to get worse for Ukraine as they freeze, as more Ukrainians die. For people like this, who are uh, keyboard warriors, sitting in Copenhagen, Denmark, wanting to fight to the last Ukrainian. He says, basically what NATO has gotten for the investment is that Russia's military have been cut in half. The professional Russian military has been defeated and Russia's ability to wage war, blah, blah, blah. It's ridiculous because they've got a huge mobilization right now. 200, 300,000 troops coming in. They keep on saying that Russia's running out of missiles and every week I turn on and there's more missile barrages. But it's people with this attitude this attitude that this is a business venture and they're playing with people's lives. They're playing with people's lives. Imagine if people in the West, where's the calls for negotiation? Oh, you hear the same things. Oh, you can't negotiate and we, we need to be a position in a position of strength. We can't negotiate with Putin. Russia was wanting to negotiate back in April, wanting to negotiate back in December before this whole thing started when they put out their security uh, a draft treaty proposal for a new European security architecture. What's so hard about saying, hey, look, NATO, you're not going to join Ukraine. You're not going to join NATO. You're going to be neutral. What was so what would have been so hard about that? About giving Russia some room. So Russia put forth this draft treaty in December of 2021. And it wasn't seriously discussed. It wasn't even looked at. I mean it was looked at, but it wasn't discussed in Congress. It wasn't discussed in the media. These are questions we have to ask. Did they want this war? According to Jans, sitting there in Copenhagen, Denmark, this has been a good investment. Never mind a hundred, however, hundred thousand Ukrainian soldiers have been killed. How many thousands of Russian soldiers? Now, Ukraine is sitting there in dark with no heat, no electricity. Jan, sitting in, the, in Denmark, is saying it was a good investment because it's hurting the Russian military. 
Do you remember when the U.S. press got all up in arms because they said Russia might be putting bounties on American soldiers in Ukraine? I mean, excuse me, in, in Afghanistan? And there was this outrage. Oh, Russia, they're putting bounties on our, on our guys in Afghanistan. And it turned out to lack credibility. It wasn't true or had no backing. There was no evidence for it. And yet the United States has taken a, a, a conflict that they instigated along with the Europeans, the Europeans, the United States, hand in hand. It's just you have the master and the slave, the servant, they instigated this conflict, and then when it escalated, they poured oil onto the, ga- onto the fire. Billions and billions of dollars, tens of billions of dollars of weaponry going into that conflict to kill Russian soldiers. That's their aim, to kill Russian soldiers. And how do you think that makes Russia feel about the United States and Europe. All of a sudden, Europe is having an energy crisis. Oh, Russia's weaponizing gas. He's weaponizing energy. You're sending tens of billions of dollars into a country to kill a military to kill soldiers. Instead of pursuing diplomacy, there is a conflict there. There are ethnic Russians who were prohibited from speaking Russian, who were killed for eight years. There, it's not black and white. There is an issue to be solved diplomatically with negotiations to pursue a peace path that has never been pursued. It hasn't been, didn't be pursued when NATO chose to disregard its own promises by expanding east. Well, we'll, We won't expand past an inch east, said the United States in the early 90s. And they went and expanded right up to the Russian border. We won't say no to Ukraine. Ukraine and Georgia, they will become part of NATO in the future. We don't care what you think, Russia. We disregard your security interests. We don't care. Our way or the highway. We're going to instigate a coup on your doorstep and back extremists with neo-Nazis in the military on your doorstep and we're, go ahead, we're going to go ahead and arm them and fund them so they can kill ethnic Russians along your border in the Donbass. And now, we're going to pour billions and billions of dollars so that we can directly kill your military, says the West. And yet the United States has the audacity to complain about some story about killing its own 
uh, bounties on soldiers in Afghanistan. The audacity. What's going on here? There's something rotten in Denmark. And it's not just Jans' post. It's hypocrisy. It's mendacity. Who gets hurt? Who benefits? What is in it? What's in it for the United States? For Europe? Why has there been no debate at all on Ukraine? In the media? In Congress? Why is this a one-sided issue? Why does the media continue to lie to us about Russia running out of missiles? Why do they give stories about the Associated Press about Russian missile hitting Poland when they had no proof? I personally... Base my opinions on research, on experience, on my values. I have a point of view. That's what this show is about. I have a point of view. You have a point of view. The mainstream media in the United States also has a point of view. And it's clear where its allegiance lies. And therefore, it should stop trying to pretend that it's journalism, that it's prevent- presenting facts, that it's presenting what is happening in the world objectively, with neutrality. Because it's not. It's engaging in war propaganda. Did the United States blow up Nord Stream 2? President Biden said that he would put an end to it if Russia went ahead. Despite a journalist asking him, how are you going to do that? That's, you know, German infrastructure, German project. Oh, we have ways of doing it, he said. Now, when I was a graduate student, a master's student, I visited the Belgian foreign ministry. And the undersecretary of the ministry gave us a little presentation. And that was the time when... That was the time when the Eastern countries were coming into the European Union. They were expanding the EU. And I said to the undersecretary, there's a big round table with... We were being given a presentation... And I said, you know, I'm concerned that you have a Trojan horse coming into your union. That these countries are going to turn the EU into the United States. Your social system is going to suffer. Your safety net, your social democracy. He said, I assure you, 
Come back in 10 years, we are not going to turn into the United States. It's been 18 years. He was wrong. That was a Trojan horse. If you look at the eastern countries and their sick obsession with Russia, so much so that when a missile flies into Poland, these Baltic countries immediately start calling for a response against Russia with no proof. Wanting a wider escalation, a wider conflict, meaning a world war. Apparently, they don't have their heads screwed tightly on and what all that entails. A couple years later, as a doctoral student, I was in the European Commission. And I just took a look at their literature and it said, one of our goals is to bring Ukraine into the European sphere. And I immediately objected. I said, European, uh, Ukraine is an independent country, but if it's in any sphere, it's in the Russian sphere, linguistically, culturally, historically. How can you talk about expanding? It's, all, it's that colonial mindset. That was two years later after this widening of the EU. Lo and behold, eight years after that, the EU was creating an association agreement with a security component to bring NATO in the back door. And that's what started this all off. One can argue 2008 when the United States said Ukraine would one day become a member of NATO. But 2014, the EU and the United States instigated a coup. And it it funded extremists, fueled a conflict against Russian, ethnic Russians in the Donbass, ignored proposals from the Russian Federation on a new security architecture. And like I said, I abhor war. I think it's always a failure. It's always a failure. I'd like everyone just to lay down their arms and do the Christian thing, stop killing each other. I think it's a sickness war. But we don't live in that world. And we live in a world where we have to deal with power and ego. And within that world, the next best thing we have, since people can't learn not to kill each other, is diplomacy. And the problem is that the West thinks that they are culturally superior to everyone, that their system is ordained by God, that it's implied in the political culture and rhetoric that they're the best, that their system is ordained. The U.S. and Europe is the end of history, as Francis Fukuyama said. 
And to go against that notion, or to have a competitor, is an abomination and will not be tolerated by the West. And when you have that sort of attitude, that sort of hubris, you can't negotiate, you can't engage, you can't partake in real diplomacy. Because you don't, you don't understand others' positions. You don't take into account their interests. You look down on everyone. You seek to dominate, to subjugate. And when there is a powerful competitor, instead of trying to make them a partner, you try to humiliate, you try to subjugate, you try to bring them down. And that's what Jans over there in Copenhagen in Denmark is saying. It's got a little bit unintended honesty there. He says, imagine that you have a company and by investing 3 to 4% of your annual budget, you could remove your biggest competitor. Listen to that language. Remove your biggest competitor. There's not a CEO in this world who would not do that. CEO is everything's business. It's coming from a competition. There was a time when Russia could have been a partner. During the Kosovo crisis, the United States bombed Kosovo for 78 days, bombed uh, Yugoslavia, the federal Yugoslavia, because of the Kosovo issue for 78 days. And there was a peaceful solution to that. And Russia opposed that military intervention and the United States said, you know what, your UN Security Council veto doesn't mean anything. Russia opposed the war in Iraq and the United States and Britain said, you know what, your veto doesn't mean anything. And so when Russia got stronger or stronger, stronger and stronger, they they had to be taken back down to that that they had to be tried to be taken back down to that place where you can humiliate where you can be the sole hegemon in this world but during that time there was a chance for a partnership if you treat people with respect if you treat people with dignity and understand their interests that they too have interests that you have to negotiate. You can't always get everything you want. You have to negotiate and give and take to have a peaceful global society. But the West, the United States and Europe seeks to dominate, sought to dominate and to control. And that's why we're here. That's why we're here. So until 
human beings really adopt the Christian attitude that killing is wrong, which it is, we have to focus also on the fact that our Western countries do not know how to conduct themselves in a fair manner and engage in real diplomacy. And until that time, until that time, people will continue to uh, fight back in other parts of the world, China, Russia, because these countries do not want to be controlled. They do not want to be told how to live. They have a, their own culture, different values. And we'll see where it goes. We'll, we're out, we'll see where it goes. We're out of time here. I enjoyed the conversation. I hope you have a wonderful Sunday evening. And until next time, as always, keep the faith. You've been listening to Ion Global Politics with Dr. Paul F.J. Aranyas. If you enjoyed this podcast, we hope you will share our International Law Education Group web address, ileducationgroup.org, with your family, friends, and colleagues. Don't forget to check out ionglobalpolitics.com for future articles and podcasts, and to follow us on Facebook and Twitter. We look forward to welcoming you to another episode of Ion Global Politics.